0: But you're not a psycho. You do know some, though, don't you, Doc? Yes, of course. I do some work at Bellevue. Hey, uh, could she have met one of these nuts at your office? I mean, some kind of weirdo she could have turned on that might have followed her? The term we use, Detective Marino, is not weirdo, but a person suffering from emotional dysfunction and a problem of maladaption. And they never come to my office. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. Check out all of my written work there. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do that is very similar to this one, although it covers more recent films, specifically from the 1990s to today. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. Check out the link for that at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first of a three-part series, kind of spinning off of the Psycho films I just reviewed for five parts, the last five episodes. Today's film is essentially, some might say, kind of a semi-remake of Psycho in its own fashion. It is by Brian De Palma and it is from 1980, it's called Dressed to Kill. Dressed to Kill is an R-rated film, it does have strong violence, strong sexuality, Nudity and language, there is an unrated version that exists that has more nudity, more violence, more language. I think the version that most people probably watch today on most formats is that unrated version. The runtime, at least the theatrical version, was an hour and 45 minutes. The cast includes Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, and Nancy Allen, along with Keith Gordon and Dennis Franz. The director and the screenwriter for Dressed to Kill, in this first of a three-part series looking at this filmmaker specifically Brian De Palma Now the seed for Dress to Kill it was planted in De Palma's mind back in 1974 He was adapting this Gerald Walker novel from 1970 called Cruising which concerned this undercover cop who goes searching underground gay clubs for a serial killer De Palma took quite a bit of artistic liberties In his adaptation, for instance, he changed the nature of the killer from a college student to this failed actor who films his murders with a video camera, which was an homage to Michael Powell's 1960 film called Peeping Tom. After the studio rejected this version, De Palma started adding other elements... He started borrowing from the formula of Psycho. He also took from the 1975 novel called Looking for Mr. Goodbar, where a woman leads a double life to explore her sexual awakening, something he was also interested perhaps in adapting at some point. De Palma added a character not found in Cruising, a bored housewife named Kate, who experiences erotic fantasies of being forcefully taken by a stranger. Kate later meets a stranger in a museum. She has a fling. She discovers after that fling that she has probably contracted an STD from the stranger. In the stranger's apartment building elevator as she's leaving, though, she's stabbed to death by the killer. Ultimately, the studio was not really happy with where De Palma was going with the material, so they handed the project over to William Friedkin instead, and he started a completely fresh adaptation independent of anything that De Palma was doing. After taking a studio assignment to direct 1978's The Fury... De Palma started repurposing his ideas that he had brought into cruising to try to embark on a new screenplay that would explore the dangerous world of casual sex and the sex industry, probably, the underground sex industry. De Palma saw this new potential screenplay as his return to the kinds of films that he was making before he took on those complicated, big-budget studio efforts like the Fury because he felt the Fury was basically a misfire because it was straying too closely with Carrie, which also happened to feature telekinesis. Variety, he thought, should keep him and the audience from growing fatigued with the material that he's putting out. However, he still needed money, so as he started working out the details for this new script, he took another studio gig. In 1978, Orion Pictures was pretty eager to develop... Somehow, a project that would star John Travolta, they worked with his film company, his burgeoning film company at the time, Travolta happened to express that he had an interest in a film adaptation of Robert Daly's true crime book called Prince of the City. Orion was so hyped on making a film with Travolta that they paid a half million dollars for the film rights to Prince of the City. They then secured Brian De Palma, who directed Travolta in Carrie. And the script was going to be written by playwright David Rabe. As the screenplay for Prince of the City was being developed, De Palma took a temporary teaching gig for a screenwriting course at his alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College. And As part of the course, he made the quirky comedy called Home Movies, which was a low-budget effort very reminiscent of his early experimental counterculture comedies. De Palma also caught during this period an episode on television of The Phil Donahue Show. This particular episode featured Nancy Hunt about her new book called Mirror Image, The Odyssey of a Male to Female Transsexual. De Palma was very intrigued by this episode. He found the notion of one body being fought over as if by two different people, eerie, yet fascinating. A Jekyll and Hyde with male and female personas battling it out in one body. As a murderer in a movie, that could be a wonderful twist. For the screenplay he was working on, which he then dubbed Dressed to Kill. Dressed to Kill was conceived as De Palma's return to Hitchcockian suspense vehicles. He had explored this a couple of times before in 1972's film called Sisters, as well as 1976's Obsession. These kinds of movies fueled his passion to thrill and chill and terrify audiences through morally ambiguous characters told through cinema techniques that emphasized style and structure over dialogue and exposition. So De Palma really wanted to hone his visual storytelling skills into a filmmaking style that could transcend the content. So he wrote the script to Dress to Kill very quickly. He kept it short. He wanted to explore very lengthy, heavily storyboarded camera sequences. Kate's psychiatrist would be revealed eventually, spoilers everybody, as the killer a schizophrenic whose murderous female side dominates when he's aroused as a male. De Palma chose a straight razor for the murder weapon after reading an article that disfigurement was a woman's greatest fear. Men's greatest fear featured castration, so it really all fit in with the transsexual subtext due to the body shaving and organ removal necessary to be a true transsexual. De Palma's finished script Featured a sexually unsatisfied housewife named Kate, she grows overwhelmed with vivid, violent, erotic fantasies. Kate complains and then makes a pass at her psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Elliott, although unsuccessfully. Kate later has a fling with a stranger. She meets in a museum, but her guilt manifests in her deepest fears coming true, ultimately culminating in her murder. Witness to the murder, though, is a high-class prostitute named Liz Blake, who describes the perpetrator as a blonde woman in sunglasses with a straight edge razor? Meanwhile, Dr. Elliot receives phone calls from his patient named Bobby, a pre op transsexual with homicidal tendencies and in possession, apparently, of Elliot's stolen razor. After waffling for over a year, John Travolta finally declined doing Prince of the City. He said it just was way too ordinary. He wanted to do bigger and better things. De Palma, then sought Robert De Niro. De Niro happened to have been in three of De Palma's early films. They had a a connection. De Niro actually agreed he was interested in doing Prince of the City, but they would have to wait another year for him to finish up his other commitments. So De Palma decided, in order to keep Orion interested, that he would offer Dress to Kill as a project for him to make for them. He could direct it while they waited. However, unbeknownst to De Palma, his agent, Sue Mangers had negotiated for another interested client of hers, Sidney Lamette, to take over Prince of the City altogether. De Palma didn't even know that he was replaced until he read it in the trade papers in October of 1979. De Palma was absolutely miffed. He dropped bankers, fired her outright. He took on another agent, and then he connected with a successful film producer named Ray Stark to try to get Dress to Kill made for another studio. He was done with Orion at least at the time. However, De Palma soon experienced creative differences with Ray Stark that jeopardized the project because Stark insisted that the Liz Blake role be offered to Suzanne Somers. Trouble was that De Palma had actually written the role of Liz Blake specifically for his actor's wife, Nancy Allen. He'd infused the character with all of Allen's traits, independence, being driven, ambitious, all of the personality strengths, that she could really excel in. Summers offered none of those qualities, De Palma felt. As a compromise, Stark suggested maybe they should get Melanie Griffith. De Palma found that very tempting because Melanie Griffith happened to be the daughter of Tippi Hedren, which was uh, one of the Hitchcock blondes who starred in The Birds and Marnie. So. However, De Palma just couldn't do it. He had already promised the part to Alan, and he wasn't going to back down with his wife. So, sensing an impasse with Stark, De Palma approached his former agent-turned-collaborator George Leto. Leto was a producer for his other Hitchcockian efforts, Obsession and Sisters. He didn't really have the clout of Ray Stark to successfully negotiate with a major studio. But Leto did happen to be able to broker a very nice deal for De Palma with American International Pictures. They had coincidentally made Sisters back in 1972. AIP agreed to buy the script out from Stark, AIP's president, Samuel Z. Arkov. He was looking for higher profile projects like Dress to Kill to gain his company legitimacy after many years of being known for exploitation figures. Legitimacy that Arkov was going to use to complete the sale of his company to Filmways shortly after. AIP slash Filmways bestowed *Dressed to Kill a budget of $6.5 million dollars as well as giving Brian De Palma full creative control and a $1 million salary for his script and directorial duties. De Palma started motorcycling around New York. He started shooting Polaroids all around while his location manager inquired about those locations' availability. Locales were chosen, including the World Trade Center, the subway station at Times Square, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. For interiors, they rented warehouse space in Manhattan to use. For the role of Dr. Elliot, De Palma relied on his own therapy sessions to guide him in his writing. To make sure it was authentic, he actually showed the script to his own psychiatrist for advice on whether a psychiatrist would say and do some of the things that he has done for Dr. Elliot in the film. De Palma specifically, though, wrote Dr. Elliot with Sean Connery in mind. De Palma would soon be delighted because Samuel Arkov independently suggested Sean Connery as a potential actor to be in that role. He approached Connery. Connery was interested because this was a role that might help erode the James Bond typecast. This was something he'd never done before. However, Connery did have a commitment to make Outland and that got the green light. So he was ready to go for that. So he was going to be unavailable. So De Palma moved on to another choice, Michael Caine. He got the nod. Caine happened to be at at a crossroads in his career, He had a string of flops just before this, so he was interested in trying to diversify his portfolio, so to speak, to do different things than he had been doing and doing unsuccessfully for a little while. So he considered De Palma very icy and aloof when he was talking with him, but he did admire De Palma's talent as a filmmaker, and he felt that he was going to be in good hands come what may. For the role of Kate, De Palma followed the psycho blueprint. He wanted to do like Hitchcock did, cast somebody like Janet Leigh. He wanted an established actress that usually did not appear in those kinds of films. He also wanted somebody that audiences already liked going into the film, so he didn't have to spend a lot of time trying to build her up. They would already carry sympathy through her indiscretions, and then they would be legitimately startled when she was killed early in the film. Like Norman Bates, De Palma's murderer was going to be a man dressed like a woman with a female split personality, triggered to murder by male sexual desire. De Palma's top choice to placate was Norwegian actress Liv Ullman. Ullman wanted to see the script before she decided. Ultimately, she declined after reading it because she found it way too violent and the sex was way too kinky. She feared that her children would eventually see it, so that she was just not going to touch it. Jill Clayburgh was De Palma's second choice. She appeared in De Palma's 1969 film called The Wedding Party, but she also declined at the time. Finally, De Palma asked Angie Dickinson. Dickinson was somebody that De Palma met six months prior at the Montreal Film Festival. He really hit it off with her, and they had a great time together. Dickinson liked De Palma, but she was still hesitant because the part was relatively small, and the sex and nudity might be something that would upset her fan base that she had garnered after starring for several years on TV's Police Woman. She also was not very keen on playing what she considered to be an ordinary woman. She feared that at 48 years old, she would start becoming typecast into housewife and mother roles henceforth. Although De Palma did persuade her that Kate was beyond just an ordinary housewife, she was going to be very glamorous, also that he would use a body double for anything that she felt uncomfortable with, and that the eroticism that would be in the film would be still on the tasteful side, it was the fact that Michael Caine signed on board that convinced Angie Dickinson to finally accept. Caine was happy to have Angie Dickinson on board. He had never been to a psychiatrist in his life, so he relied on Dickinson's therapy experience to guide him on how to behave through those sessions. Dickinson, as I mentioned, she was almost 50 years old. She was very self-conscious about full frontal nudity, and she really hated having to be naked on the set. She just felt it was hell having to come in and have everybody stare at her naked body. Kate's torso close-ups during her shower masturbation and fantasy scene were of 26-year-old Penthouse Pet of the Year from 1977, Victoria Lynn Johnson. For prostitute Liz Blake, as I mentioned, Nancy Allen, She was on board, she channeled this model that she once knew who aspired to become a mistress to wealthy men and to live luxuriously. De Palma also had Alan, in order to prepare for the role, read Nancy Friday's books, Forbidden Flowers, as well as My Secret Garden, and also Xavier Hollander's Happy Hooker. These were books either about women's kinky fantasies or the lives of high-class prostitutes. Very good background material for what Liz Blake was all about. Alan was not really happy about ultimately receiving third billing for the film because she felt she had the most screen time. Even Michael Caine agreed that Alan should be billed higher than him at the very least. But her agent, again, Sue Mangers, refused to advocate for her star status because she felt that actors should not be the ones who tell studios that they're stars, it should be the studios that tell actors. They're the ones who have the money on the line. They want to market the material with the ones that are going to put butts in seats. Peter Miller, the son of Kate Miller in the film, was originally written to be a 12-year-old boy, but when De Palma struggled to find a competent child actor, he decided to age up Peter Miller so he was into his mid-to-late teens. De Palma had in mind his 15-year-old nephew named Cameron, but Cameron was too inexperienced as an actor to pull off the role. In auditions, it was just too obvious. George Leto suggested uh, an actor that had appeared in one of his films called Over the Edge, Matt Dillon, He, like Cameron, was also 15 years old at the time, but he was a much more experienced actor. So they met with him, they had lunch with him, but De Palma determined that he seemed a little too street tough to play such a vulnerable nerd. Allen, who performed readings with the younger actors, suggested that they go with 18-year-old Keith Gordon. She had just appeared in a movie with him, Home Movies, the De Palma film, and she felt they had great chemistry together. So Gordon's age also offered the benefit of avoiding SAG child actor restrictions. So he could be on the set just like any other actor, any of the hours that were allowed and under whatever context. And Gordon had the extra benefit of essentially playing Brian De Palma's younger alter ego. He did it in Home Movies, He was going to do it again here, an intelligent but very lonely and misunderstood introvert fascinated with film and math and technology. Additional autobiographical elements did creep into the production of Dressed to Kill. The computer that Peter invents in the film is a replica of the differential analyzer that De Palma himself had made as a kid for the Philadelphia Science Fair. Also, De Palma's parents split up after his mother accused his father of infidelity with a nurse and she subsequently became suicidal, De Palma very much on his mother's side through this ordeal, started following his father around, tapping his phone, setting up a camera to surveil him at his office. He wanted to prove his mother right so that his mother would have the evidence for the subsequent divorce case, surveillance, infidelity, and a nurse, all of those important elements of dress to Kill. When De Palma's friend and apartment-building neighbor Paul Mazursky was too busy with his film Willie and Phil to play police detective Marino, De Palma instead hired Dennis Franz, who he had basically discovered and really enjoyed playing a cop in The Fury. As for cinematographer, De Palma's first choice was Vilmos Zygmunt. However, Zygmunt would continue to be tied up with the fiasco known as Heaven's Gate at the time, so he moved on to Ralph Bode, who photographed dress to kill with sumptuous soft lens shimmering the steady cam work in dress to kill enhances its dreamlike qualities and the split diopter that splits the screen so that you can see different things at different times all on the same image that economizes the narrative timing of the film very effectively the palma also hired carrie's composer pino Donaggio, who also did home movies for the sensual emotional feminine and erotic score that sometimes turns abrasive when things start getting very terrifying. The museum interiors, those were filmed at Philadelphia's Museum of Art instead of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art because that became unavailable to De Palma. No other local museums either fit the bill or would allow the shoot. The museum seduction idea altogether was a notion that De Palma had he had once took an art history course at Columbia University, and he liked to go to the museum as a way to pick up girls. The scene was originally scripted to feature a voiceover offering Kate's inner monologue of what she was thinking at the time that she was getting essentially picked up, but De Palma decided to remove it during editing in favor of just emphasizing Donaggio's incredible score. For the taxi seduction that takes place after the museum sequence, they used two taxis, one was split in half for close-ups of the actors in the back seat, and then there was another cab, a real one, that was actually in operation. Bystanders would catch glimpses of the simulated lovemaking as Dickinson and her fellow actor rode around town. The camera was hidden, so all of these onlookers started shouting, Right on, policewoman! After filming, there was a sign that was placed within that very cab reading, Angie Dickinson was seduced here. Now, because De Palma did find Dickinson's delivery during those sequences very silly, she was very self-conscious about doing it. Kate's orgasmic moans were instead dubbed by actress and longtime De Palma friend, Rutanya Alda, as a favor. Ritania Alda had appeared in a, a few of his older films, including The Fury and some of his early works. The post venereal disease discovery idea actually came from an incident in De Palma's past One time he was visiting an old girlfriend who had just received a medical report listing her among the sexual partners of somebody who had been recently diagnosed with VD, so she received some bad news at the time. Some additional changes were made. De Palma wanted the film to actually open with a man shaving his body hair with the straight razor until he gets all the way down to his pubic hair, and then we would see him remove the hair and then castrate himself in, in a very bloody fashion. There were two different men that were going to be used to complete the scene. One would be the shaver, one would be the shavy, but that made it all very awkward to shoot, and De Palma decided to forego it altogether because the razor wasn't really cutting hair neatly in one swoop without shaving cream, and De Palma did not want to use shaving cream, especially the pubic hair. It just wasn't going to come off the way that he intended, so he decided instead to just get rid of that scene and open with Kate's shower fantasy instead. He also changed the ending, because in his original ending, Liz was going to be observing the killer's reflection in the mirror. She would open the medicine cabinet, and the killer's arm would reach out from within the medicine cabinet to slash her throat, whereupon she would wake up in bed with one of her clients. Obviously, in the finished film, you see Peter coming in from another room to console her after the nightmare. De Palma actually considered that there was going to be a double false ending at the end of this film, because... Not only would Liz wake up, but she would be shown to get killed again. And then she would be shown waking up one more time, this time for real. So she was going to wake up twice because she had a nightmare. And then a dream she had a nightmare. And then, of course, the reality of her waking up from the dream of the nightmare. As I mentioned, there are some potently graphic sex and violence in the film. The MPAA understandably gave De Palma's original cut. They said they were going to give it an X rating if he did not cut some of it. X ratings were pretty much a death knell for films at the time, a severe hindrance because newspapers wouldn't carry advertisements for it. A lot of theaters would not carry the film at all to be shown there. So after three resubmissions, the edgiest material was trimmed mostly it was nudity rather than the graphic violence de palma called that reasoning absurd because he quipped that if somebody hacks off a breast in a film that would get an r rating but somehow if somebody kisses a breast that's an x he had to content himself knowing that others were going to see his uncut version at least in overseas theaters where they were a little bit more liberal about their films Dressed to Kill, beyond that, still drew protests, specifically from women's groups, because there were elements here that they found very sexist, very exploitative, very degrading in its depiction of violence against women. So Dickinson did try to defend the film. She said that the violence against women is real. So denying that it exists in film does more harm than actually showing it, she felt. Furthermore, violent people, they're going to commit violent acts regardless of whether they see it in a movie, because movies did not create violence. Violence has always existed. And although all of the controversy did give the film some pretty great publicity, De Palma still was personally upset. He was offended at being singled out because there were so many slasher films In 1980 at the movie theaters at the time and they were 10 times more graphic he felt and those films seemed to be receiving none of the ire from the same groups that were protesting him and he felt personally that he was being penalized because he actually made audiences care about the victims he was too effective at building up the characters enough for us to give a damn when they are slaughtered and that's what made it so offensive to some people as an example he pointed to psycho's shower sequence People claim that's the most violent moment in cinema history, and the knife is never shown penetrating the body. The British release also drew some protests at the time. The Yorkshire Ripper, he had murdered nine women at the time of the film's release. He was still at large, so they pulled it from certain theaters in the vicinity of the killings, fearing that seeing these violent images would somehow trigger more murders by the Ripper. De Palma was not a violent person at all. He had never thrown a punch in his life. He did say that he did gravitate toward violence in his art because he regarded it as somehow beautiful and sensuous and poetic. And he believed that observing violence on the screen somehow, instead of increasing violence, would actually reduce a viewer's compulsion for real-life violence. De Palma felt that there was actually no correlation between actual violence and film violence. He had seen many violent films in his life, and he had never felt any reason to be violent with anybody else. And he felt that most audiences felt that way too. If a person gets slashed, he felt it should be shown because audiences should feel the pain. Sanitized violence that didn't impact the audience was probably more prone to make people think that violence didn't have that many impactful consequences he defended his use of women as victims because he was being called a misogynist by so many of these women's groups. He said that the women in Jeopardy formula works, and that's why he used it. It wasn't that he was anti-women. It just happened to be what audiences actually responded to. They were more frightened when they saw a woman in a negligee holding a candelabra in terror instead of some tough guy holding a flashlight. Although Michael Caine was not the actor who performed the elevator murder, he actually had a stand-in through most of uh, Bobby's appearances, which I'll get to in just a little bit. He still received blowback from women's groups for what his character does in this films. Kane did admit that it was very gruesome. He was shocked personally by the graphicness, and he asked De Palma why he went so far with it. De Palma's defense was that this was going to be the only murder that we see in the film. So he wanted audiences to hold it in their memory so that they would feel fear for the entire remainder of the film as to what Bobby was going to do. Years after their marriage ended, De Palma's soon-to-be ex-wife, she acknowledged that there was really not a lot of denying if you look at De Palma's body of work that he seemed to enjoy building women up only to tear them apart. De Palma did feel that audiences secretly desired to see Liz killed by Bobby for her promiscuity, tapping into this societal stigma that the slaughter of sexually open women is somehow justifiable. That was a big trope, especially in the early 1980s and all of those slasher films. De Palma defended the use of the trope of sex and guilt, not because he personally believed in it, because he said it just works with audiences. That's the only thing he cared about. De Palma also was very defensive about another aspect that critics threw at him, the label Hitchcock imitator. De Palma admitted that he learned a lot from Hitchcock's films and he felt a spiritual bond with Hitchcock's cinematic techniques and his subject matter. But he'd argued that there was no trademark on cinematic techniques and he fumed that his personal idiosyncrasies that he brought to the film that Hitchcock never brought into his own films were being ignored. Hitchcock actually made nearly 50 suspense thrillers, so it was impossible for anybody to make a thriller without doing something that Hitchcock had not done before, so even Hitchcock did not escape regurgitation of his own ideas. So why should he get knocked for tapping into that same language that nobody else seemed to be doing besides Hitchcock? Critics, though, continue to overlook De Palma's personal choices. De Palma longed for his films to be labeled De Palmaian instead of Hitchcockian at some point. Hitchcock was very different, he felt. He was very elegant, he was very refined. Even in his edgier films, he did hold back, but De Palma preferred eroticism, grit, harsh language. He saw no reason to hold back titillating, shocking, or scaring audiences with what he felt were the most effective methods in their face. Hitchcock did not do other techniques that De Palma had kind of invented for his own films. Split-screen action, slow motion to try to raise the tension, and nobody else was taking on women's erotic fantasies in thrillers or mixing them with the surreal style that he took from Luis Buñuel. De Palma explored blurred lines all throughout his films, between male and female, between reality and dreams. The action all exists on a very subconscious level, He wanted to explore intuition over logic, even where he didn't fully understand what it meant himself. John Landis, he happened to lunch with Hitchcock every other week, especially toward the end of Hitchcock's life. He relates a story he often tells about Hitchcock's annoyance with Brian De Palma's films being referred to as Hitchcockian in all the trade papers. Hitchcock called it stealing, but Landis defended it. He said it was actually just more homage Hitchcock responded, you mean fromage? Hitchcock, well, from his point of view, he was right, at least in his mind and in the mind of many film buffs, because De Palma did happen to borrow Hitchcockian techniques. He was hoping to make a name for himself as the successor to Hitchcock, the master of the macabre, he would call himself, or the merchant of menace. He regularly used those labels, claiming that other people were calling him that. He was very proud of those. De Palma himself argued that using tried and true methods was required to direct in the thriller genre. You were not going to ever become a successful director of thrillers by completely ignoring all of the techniques and styles and subject matter that people found thrilling in prior films. Now, one knock that some people might Ascribed to Dress to Kill is that the killer's identity is pretty easily identifiable. I mean, there are frequent shots of Dr. Elliot looking in a mirror at certain times. There's really not enough red herrings to really shake you from the notion that Elliot has some sort of secret and it's probably a split personality thing. You know, there are a lot of hints throughout the film. Some of them are very obvious. For instance, his name is Robert. The killer's name is Bobby. So I guess it's not heavily emphasized that his name is Robert versus Dr. Elliot, but still... It's there for those people who are looking for it. It's not that the Palma doesn't really try to throw some viewers off the scent. For instance, William Finley provided the American-accented voice of Bobby on the answering machine. Uh, That was to make it less obvious that it was going to be Kane. A tall German actress named Susanna Clem, she played Kane's body double as Bobby. In fact, she plays Bobby all throughout At least until the reveal, Clem wore a a false nose that very much resembled Kane's. She wore some body padding to make it look like she had the body of a man underneath all of the clothes. Clem also happens to play the police officer that shoots Bobby in the climax, so this kind of worked out well for the production because Clem was far less costly. She happened to work for Scale, and Kane wasn't happy at all about the thought of dressing as Bobby He had never been in drag, he was worried he was going to like it, and he might actually become a transvestite one day, at least that's how he quipped. He shaved multiple times a day uh, in preparation for that final reveal, because he was going to be wearing tights, and he felt his wig looked a little too silly. The lipstick smeared his cigars in a way he didn't like, and he was very clumsy in walking around in high-heeled shoes. Instead of ladies' panties, though, Michael Caine decided he was going to keep on his underwear, his male underwear. He felt that that was going to keep him from ultimately losing his male side altogether. Caine's agent also happened to be Sue Mangers. She was a very powerful agent at the time. She informed Michael Kane that he looked so awful as a woman that he'd never succeed at leading a double life, so he needn't worry. Caine did happen to keep his nurse's outfit from the shoot as kind of a memento he put it in his uh, suitcase and when his wife shakira unpacked that suitcase she feared wow well, maybe he had been unfaithful letting some mistress's clothes get mixed in with his however upon close inspection shakira felt relief because she knew michael k would never be with any woman who is built like these clothes would suggest despite its controversies dressed to kill was ultimately a big box office success. It earned over thirty one million dollars in the United States alone, and it was even a bigger hit in international theaters, especially in Europe and in South America as well. Critics either loved dressed to kill, or loathed it in the United States. though Hitchcock's death just preceding the film's release certainly did not help its reputation, especially when advertisements dared to proclaim De Palma as the new master of suspense while Hitchcock had just been buried. There was also some backlash forming against the many cheap and sleazy and misogynistic slasher films coming out around the same time, so his film kind of got lumped in with that ire. After this, at least in the minds of many, De Palma was considered either a wonderkind or a ripoff artist in the minds of many critics. It really solidified that notion among many. The mixed feelings extended also to the cast. Nancy Allen received not only a Golden Globe nomination for New Star of the Year, but she also got a Razzie for Worst Actress, along with Kane for Worst Actor and De Palma for Worst Director. They were all nominated. They did not win any of these nominations, though. And so while it does, you know, it does fall short of the genius of Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, Dressed to Kill, probably one of Brian De Palma's best thrillers, maybe his best But Hitchcock beat him to the punch at so much of this material and did it so much better in his era. De Palma does show an understanding still of how virtuoso camera movements and music can arrest the viewer's attention very well. I'd say as a story, it's pretty far-fetched. It's very predictable. It's unoriginal, to be sure. But I do think it's still very effective at commanding your attention from its tantalizing beginning to the coily twisting end. The psycho illusions are obvious. But I do think that De Palma does find his own style that is both intense and visually engaging all throughout this film. You cannot take your eyes off the screen. I don't think that De Palma is one for extensive character development or narrative cohesion per se. I mean, his mission ultimately is just to play with audience expectations and to keep everybody on board. Suspense, shock, De Palma lures everyone in for the big scare, and he's not afraid of graphic sex and violence to try to both attract and repulse you into his lurid web of sensationalistic frights. Dress to Kill is a potent mix of Hitchcockian elegance and shock exploitation it does make up for its lack of classiness with this mastery of cinematic technique that shows that Brian De Palma is a genuine talent beyond just being a plagiarizer of ideas. It's very sick, it's very slick, it's very bloody, very hilarious, all at the same time, and that makes for a truly memorable thriller that mesmerizes adeptly so much that you'll feel kind of a hangover shortly after about how effortlessly De Palma happens to entertain you without bothering with any attempts at logic or cohesion in his film. And that's why, ultimately, I give Dress to Kill 3.5 stars out of 4. 3.5 stars on my scale means that I do think that Dress to Kill is a good film. It's a really good thriller. I'd say of all the thrillers that emulate Hitchcock without actually being Hitchcock, this really does come remarkably close to Palma. Whether he's stealing or whether he's playing homage, he's doing it really well and very effectively. He learned from the master almost to become a master himself in his own way. So three and a half stars out of four is what I give dress to kill. If you have your own thoughts on dress to kill and you want to impart them to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net Q W I P S T E R.net least to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram emails, the best way to get in touch if you so desire. I do encourage you to reach out to me. Let me know how you like the show if you've been listening for a while and haven't gotten in touch. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, it's De Palma's next film. And it's another thriller. And it does have some Hitchcockian elements to it. Although it does borrow from a lot more than that. And I'll get into that in a moment. It's Hitchcockian in suspense. Maybe not the subject matter as much. Although there are some rear window allusions to it. It's called Blowout from 1981 starring John Travolta and bringing back Nancy Ellen yet again John Lithgow as well and that will be the film I cover on the next episode so I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am because it's another one of those movies I do enjoy watching give you some time to catch up with that film before I get into the review next week so I do heartily thank you for joining me on this journey around the world in 80s movies